impressive. Um, Got to do that in Arizona, though, don't you? It's it's uh, it's a little warm down there. Yeah, I think uh, 110 today. Wow. Uh, but it's a dry heat. Uh, well, no, actually, we have monsoon season, so uh, get a lot of rain. And in fact, uh, it's funny you said that. I was trying to do a hundred mile ride on uh, Friday morning, left at 2 a.m., and it got shortened by huge thunderstorms. So, okay. uh, yeah, that time of year. Um, boy, we're looking forward to this. I don't know how you're gonna, uh, what you're gonna do in one hour or thereabouts uh, for church history. I'm sure you have a plan. We're looking forward to it. Um, again, thank you. And uh, with that, uh, we can get started. I will uh, pray very quickly, if you'd like. Sure. Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this uh, uh, time to come together and look into your word and look into church history and the importance of it in our understanding of uh, how uh, we can trust that your word is from uh, of the Holy Spirit and that uh, we can rely on it, and we ask that we, become, we can become better all apologetics through this study. Um, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, yeah, we do have a brief period of time. I'm certainly not going to try to cover the whole of church history, but uh, what uh, Andy and I had talked about was discussing the importance of knowing church history uh, in doing apologetics. Now, some of you might say, well, that's fine for you. You debate in mosques and uh, things like that, So, uh, but why should that worry me? Well, the fact of the matter is, uh, unless we're living in a, uh, a lead-lined cave, we know that difficult days are coming for the church. We know that there is a, uh, a general um, degradation in the moral standards and the thinking of our society, and there are a lot of people who very much want to silence uh, the, the teaching and preaching of the gospel within our society. They want us to celebrate things we cannot celebrate um, and to denigrate things that we cannot denigrate. And so uh, we are commanded, all believers are commanded to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within them, having treated Christ as Lord in their hearts. And so as we have opportunity, and, and interestingly enough, as, as the society becomes more and more opposed to the Christian message, post-Christian America, as it's called, we have actually more and more opportunities, uh, even though they may be difficult opportunities, even though we may be identified as haters or bigots or closed-minded or whatever. Uh, we have more and more opportunities to actually speak the truth to those around us. And when we do so, we need to realize that because of this thing we're using right now, I mean, th this type of technology didn't exist when, uh, uh, you know, uh, when the first uh, Bush was elected president, uh, when you think about it that way. Um, which doesn't seem that long ago to me, uh, this technology also means that a lot of false teaching, a lot of errors concerning the, the Christian faith and our history uh, can be promulgated uh, right over our cell phones and our iPads and our computers. And so people have asked me over the years, uh, given what I do, uh, the various contexts in which I debate and things like that, what two classes in Bible college and seminary have been the most useful for me? And my answer has always been the same, Greek and church history. And Greek should be pretty straightforward as to why that's extremely useful to know, but the vast majority of religious attacks and a large number of non-religious attacks upon the Christian faith depend upon the ignorance of the Christian person of their own history. And so uh, certainly religious groups, when we think of, for example, Mormonism, which is not as big there as it is here, but uh, the Mormons have a certain theory that the Christian church ceased to exist in the generation after the apostles. There was no Christian church from about 100 AD until April 6, 1830, when it was restored under Joseph Smith. And so they have a certain theory that, well, you know, they're... Christian doctrine of the Trinity developed from Greek philosophy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, each one of these groups will have their own, their own theory. Uh, one thing you'll hear, for example, all the time from lots of different groups, whether it's the Muslims or the Mormons, they all repeat the same thing. They'll say, well, you only have four Gospels uh, in, your, in your Bible, but there were, there were many, many other Gospels that were written. And 
the, the Emperor Constantine at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD determined which books would be in the Bible and which books would not, and he rejected these Gospels and accepted these. That's why you believe what you believe. But if he had made a different decision, you'd believe a different thing. Now, none of that has the slightest bit of truth to it historically, but it has been repeated so many times. You can find it in so many videos on YouTube, and that's that's how you determine truth, is how many videos something is in YouTube. Um, that uh, many Christians really struggle to know how to respond to that kind of a claim. Now, let me just say right now, um, the Council of Nicaea in 325, very important council. First, what's called ecumenical council, worldwide council. Approximately 318 bishops by tradition were there, mainly from the East. Um, the, the discussion was on the relationship of the Father and the Son, uh, it was primarily uh, between those who held the full deity of the Son versus those who believed that there was a time when the Son was not. He came into existence at a particular point in time. They were called the Arians. And uh, I, wrote a, I wrote an article for the CRI Journal, well, uh, probably, probably 20 years ago now, but it is available online, called What Really Happened to the Council of Nicaea that you might find interesting and useful along these lines. But always remember, that uh, A, the council was not ruled over by Constantine. Constantine didn't tell them what to do or what decisions they made. He simply called the council. Um, secondly, there were men there who were missing limbs and things like that because only 12 years earlier, the church was still under major imperial persecution. So the idea that these men who had been willing to die the gospel of Christ 12 years later would be willing to just roll over for the emperor and believe whatever he told them to believe is ridiculous. And thirdly, they only discussed uh, the issue of the deity of Christ. They did actually have one little canon that's interesting in regards to the authority of various churches that limited Rome's authority, which is interesting. But the point is, they never talked about the canon of Scripture. It never came up. And yet, you will find... Uh, video after video after video from atheists, Muslims, Mormons, just from every which direction, uh, the, the old zeitgeist movie and all the rest of that kind of stuff, uh, saying that your Bible was created by the actions of these individuals in 325. Well, if, if how many of you are old enough to remember Shirley MacLaine? Anybody remember? Okay. I, I guess I shouldn't put it that way because everybody's like, I don't want to admit to being that <laughs> Stop that. Um, but um, Shirley, remember when Shirley MacLaine, uh, sometime in the late 1980s, I think, she came out with this uh, uh, movie, Out on a Limb, uh, where she was pushing the New Age movement, and she had gotten into it, and she had a guru and, and, uh, and a, a, a spirit guide and all the rest of this stuff. And in the movie, she's out on a beach with her guru, and he's teaching her to say, I am God, I am God, I am God. We're all sitting at home going, no, you're not, no, you're not, no, you're not. And, and she had into all this weird stuff. Well, she would tell people that the doctrine of reincarnation was in the Bible, but it was taken out by the Council of Constantinople in 381. All right. Most of us hear that, but... If all we heard was that, how many of us have any idea at all what happened to the Council of Constantinople? How many of us have any idea uh, as to the state of the biblical text at that time? Could someone in the days of Constantine 325 or the days of the Council of Constantinople in 381, could someone have taken an entire doctrine out of the Bible or put an entire doctrine into the Bible like uh, Dan Brown theorized? Uh, with the Da Vinci Code? Uh, well, the fact of the matter is, no, none of that could have happened. We have uh, papyri manuscripts of major portions of the Bible that long predate all of that and have a, a couple complete manuscripts that are right in between those two dates. Um, so there would have been clear documentary evidence had someone made that kind of, uh, of a change. But the fact is that it would be good for us to have at least a general idea of the history of the church so as to be able to have some level of confidence to respond uh, to the accusations that are made and made very frequently uh, by uh, 
those seeking to promote either an attack on Christianity or a perversion of Christianity. Our ignorance of our history, and it has, and it's been well said, that for a lot of uh, uh, conservative evangelicals or fundamentalists or whatever terms people want to use, um, church history pretty much starts with Billy Graham. Um, and uh, in, in fact, I was just I was just reminded recently of a. Uh, I think it was a Peanuts, uh, Charles Schultz Peanuts strip, where one of the young girls was assigned uh, a paper in, in school uh, to write uh, about church history. And so she says, I've, I've been assigned to write about church history. Church history started when our pastor was born in 1932. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's sadly for a lot of people, I was pretty much raised with the idea that Basically, up until Martin Luther, it was all just a bunch of Catholics anyways. And the Lutherans weren't really on the ball either. So, um, you know, you, you really did just have a, a, a very minor emphasis upon the concept of church history. Thankfully, in seminary, um, I had a—I had actually tried to take church history in Bible college, and I had such a horrible teacher— and such a horrible book that I dropped it. I mean, it's I just like, oh, I'm not going to waste my time. That, that didn't help. Uh, but I had an awesome seminary teacher uh, for church history. And it was a required class. There wasn't much you could do about it. And it, I, it was so good that I audited the class uh, after I had taken the class. I think I took it three times. He was so good and, and communicated such a love for the subject that the first class I ever taught after I graduated seminary at Grand Canyon College was, was church history as well. And I've always prided myself on being able to take students who were, many of them were taking the class because it was sort of required and you had to have the history credit and blah, 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 um, and really exciting them about it because it is a tremendously exciting thing. Um, in 1993, uh, Pope John Paul came to Denver uh, for the uh, World Youth Day, and I did two debates during his visit with a fellow by the name of Jerry Matitix on the subject of the papacy. And obviously, the second debate on the history as aspect really requires you to do a, a lot of historical research, a lot of historical reading, obviously. And dealing with the papacy as a whole requires a tremendous amount of, uh, of reading in church history and a knowledge of these things. There's, anybody who really knows church history had better not lose a debate on papacy. Uh, because the papacy as, a, as an institution, really, it hangs in midair. Uh, if you know anything about this, it, it, its greatest development took place during the medieval period, and the people who primarily developed it were drawing from sources that we all know today were completely bogus. Um, the donation of Constantine, the pseudo-Isidorian decretals, people back then believed they were real. Today we know that they were completely false, and in fact, I think it was Thomas Aquinas. I think when you look at his arguments to the papacy, a minimum of 85% of the citations from the early church fathers he used were bogus. He didn't make them up. He thought they were true, but they had been forged. And back then, an interesting factoid here, have you ever noticed uh, paintings from the medieval period, especially the early medieval period, of like David... Uh, or biblical stories from the Old Testament. Have you ever noticed something weird about them? Um, David's always riding a horse wearing armor, and he lives in a castle. And some people might think, well, they're just trying to make it relevant to their day. No. Uh, people in that day, the average person born in the medieval period, the early medieval period, never moved more than seven miles any direction from where they were born in their entire life. So think about that. That's how big your world is. And many people, because of the collapse of education in Europe during that time period, suffered from what's called anachronism. They actually believed that the world has always been the way that it was then. And so when they paint pictures of biblical stories, they didn't know that things were different back then. And so they would paint David, you know, uh, as David would be a knight or a king uh, in their day. And so because people didn't realize that things had changed. So many of the documents that were forged at that time contain massive anachronisms. In other words, they contain elements that would not have existed in the context of the time period that the, the alleged book was originally written in. 
But since people were stuck in anachronism, they didn't recognize it. It wasn't until the Renaissance and the Reformation that people started going, hey, wait a minute, that couldn't have existed back then because that wasn't invented until such and such a date. And the, the forgeries were, were detected. Well, all that's a long story to get back to the fact that uh, John Paul came and we did these debates on the, on the papacy up in, uh, up in Denver. And while we were up there, uh, there was a papal treasures exhibit that was, uh, that was there. And I wasn't, I could care less about diadems and gold and diamonds and stuff like that. But I was reading about uh, the exhibit in a newspaper article because we were also doing uh, street witnessing. We were put has, uh, passing out tracts to the hundreds of thousands of people who had shown up for this. And um, it was mentioned that one of the items in the Papal Treasures exhibit was a page from biblical manuscript P72. And I said to Rich Pierce, the president of Alpha Omega, even way back then, uh, I said, we're going to go see this because he had to go get tickets and then he had to show up at a certain time and stuff like that. Uh, and I got to go in and see uh, P72. And I got to see uh, this this manuscript. And uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm sort of afraid to even try to show it to you to mess up our feed because our feed is nice and stable right now. Uh, but I, I normally, when I give my New Testament reliability presentation, I've got a really nice picture of the very same page that I, that I saw up there. Uh, why do I mention that? Well, here you have a, a, a manuscript written long before the Council of Nicaea. Not written by a person with overly good handwriting. This was probably not a professional scribe. This probably was either a businessman, possibly even a, a, a soldier of, of a little higher rank that would have had some some literary training or something like that. And it was written during a period of time where possession of biblical manuscripts was illegal. Uh, the Romans picked up on the idea that the Christian faith was a faith based upon the scriptures. And so uh, they began to try to destroy the Christian scriptures. And uh, one, of the, one of the biggest issues in early church history was persecution. Uh, starting with Nero, for from about 60 to about 250, you would have periods of persecution in certain areas. You might go for generations in one area without any persecution at all, but it was always hanging over your head. Um, starting in 250 all the way up to 313, you have constant and empire-wide uh, persecution as the Roman Empire is dying and is uh, blaming this on Christianity and trying to stomp out Christianity and bring back the good old days, basically. And during that period of time, literally thousands of biblical manuscripts were destroyed uh, by the Romans. And the church was convulsed uh, by how to respond to persecution. Uh, some of the major early splits uh, were, were because of differences in how to respond to persecution, and especially how to respond to people who had lapsed during periods of persecution. So let's say in your area there is a couple years, one particular local magistrate's really against Christianity is a tremendous amount of persecution, and then that magistrate dies or moves on or something like that, and now you have relative peace. But what do you do with the people who, from your perspective, gave in, and they want to come back into the church? Um, and there was tremendous controversy over this, and it, it tore the church apart in many areas. And uh, as a result, uh, really, honestly, that then led eventually, and, it, and I would normally take a lot more time to talk about this. I'm just, I'm just talking about how we've been impacted by church history. That eventually resulted in the division between those people like the early church father, Cyprian, uh, in North Africa in the middle of the third century, um, who believed that a sacrament as it was performed, like baptism, if the person performing it was not truly a Christian, then the baptism is invalid. So this led to the idea that if, if, if someone lapsed under persecution and then they were involved in ordaining a bishop or doing baptism, 
that bishop really isn't a bishop. The baptism isn't really a baptism because they're an apostate. They have, they've left the faith, and so they can no longer perform these ordinances and sacraments. On the other side, uh, eventually, someone that you and I have both heard of by the name of Augustine had to oppose Cyprian's views. Now, Augustine lived long after Cyprian, but Cyprian's views had become very important in North Africa. Augustine came up with a different concept. Uh, Cyprian's view was called ex opera operanti. That is, the operation is valid because of the, of the sacramental nature of the person performing it. Augustine developed the idea of ex opera operato, which means that the sacrament is valid simply because it's a sacrament and it doesn't matter who performs it. And this was Augustine's way of trying to hold the church together in North Africa because a huge split had taken place between what are called the Donatists, who followed Cyprian's view, and then Augustine and, uh, and the majority, but barely a majority, of other churches. There were hundreds and hundreds of Donatist churches in North Africa uh, all the way up to the time of the, of the Muslim conquest in North Africa, and then they sort of disappeared, which a lot of churches did in North Africa at that time. Anyway, that theology that Augustine developed against the Donatist controversy became extremely important in the development of the Roman Catholic concept of the seven sacraments and uh, the Roman Catholic concept of the church and the authority of the church. That's why B.B. Uh, Warfield uh, could say many, many years later, the Reformation, inwardly considered, was nothing more than the victory of Augustine's doctrine of grace over Augustine's doctrine of the church. So in other words, the Reformation, both sides were quoting Augustine. Both sides would say, Augustine was on our side. He said this, that, and the other thing. Um, but both could do that properly because Augustine contradicted himself. He had one major uh, con uh, conflict at the beginning of his ministry, the Donatist controversy, where he developed his sacramental theology. But then the last major controversy he had was the Pelagian controversy, where he developed his doctrine of grace, election, the whole nine yards. And so both sides could quote from Augustine properly on different subjects during the time of the Reformation. Um, but even at that time, Augustine developed, actually allowed the government to become involved in the suppression of the Donatists. Now, he had no way of knowing that what that was going to lead to later on in the medieval period the combination of his doctrine of the church and the role of the government at that time was going to lead to what we know as the Inquisition. Uh, but he had no way of knowing that. Uh, it's, it's amazing to me when, when modern people blame him for that. Uh, it's anachronistic to hold somebody accountable for something they could never even dream would happen down the road. But historically, as we look back, these were part of the building blocks that led to these various things. And I, I think it, it's, it's, it's not just important for apologetics that we know stuff about the canon of Scripture and how the canon developed and what the real issues were there, um, that we know about uh, the early Christological controversies, that we know about Arianism and, and um, uh, the rise of what's called Sabellianism or modalism, the idea that God's one person, but he has different modes or, or, or uh, ways of existing and ways of behaving and, and roles that he takes and things like this. It is important to know about those things, to know about when they came about, uh, who championed these things, how they were dealt with. Uh, apologetically, very important. But the fact is, our own beliefs, our own confessions of faith, our own ways of worship, have been deeply influenced by and determined by movements that took place long, long, long ago. And I've often said that studying church history gives us the, the one opportunity to have uh, a mirror and be able to look at ourselves. See, we're, we're too close to most of the controversies we're involved in to stand back and objectively look at the issues from a meaningful perspective. Um, but history, church history, gives us that ability to step back and, and see ourselves in a way that we can't in any other fashion. But that does require us, of course, to view ourselves as standing in that long line of people 
who have been followers of Jesus Christ. And a lot of modern evangelicals, and it's certainly uh, in, in the millennial uh, generation, there is such a major disconnection from the concept of uh, our ancestors and our dependence upon them and, and our relationship with them. Uh, so many in the millennial generation have, have no interest at all in uh, in that relationship at all, and that frequently comes into the church. And so we end up with, with the idea that, well, we get to reinvent church. Uh, every generation gets to uh, come up with its own uh, idea of what, uh, of what church is supposed to be like, instead of recognizing that Christ has been building his church uh, for 2,000 years, and that what we believe is has been handed down to us, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. It's not like, it, it's one thing to say every generation has to make the faith their own. That's true. Um, no question about it. That's part of the maturing of, of any believer is moving from that point where, well, I was taught this as a kid, but now this is truly my faith. This is something I uh, am committed to. No, no two ways about it. But the reality is that so much of what we believe as Christian orthodoxy uh, was something that uh, tremendous uh, battles were fought over in the past. Um, when I saw that, uh, that papyri that I mentioned, P72, in, uh, in Denver, uh, it's the, the, that particular leaf is the end of 1 Peter and the beginning of 2 Peter. And 2 Peter 1.1 has in it what's called a Granville Sharp construction, uh, where it speaks of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we went in, I'm looking at it, and you got to realize we, we almost got in trouble because, you know, try to picture this in your mind. There are thrones and tiaras and, and jewels and all sorts of other stuff on display. And over in the corner is this piece of papyri under glass. And there I'm standing. And I'm reading it, and I'm going, oh, look at the Nomen Sacra, and there's the Granville Sharp, you know. And my friend Rich is standing there, and people would walk up, and they'd, they'd, uh, they'd look at it, and they'd, they'd read the description. They'd look at me, and they'd look over at Rich and go, can he read that? And Rich would go, yeah. Come over here, Harold. This man's reading this ancient <laughs> People start gathering around. The security people are you know, getting really, really unhappy about this, you know, and and so Rich would drag me off to go look at a tiara for a while, and then I'd go back. And eventually they said this or need to move on. But um, right there in 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, you have a reference to the deity of Christ. Totally refutes Dan Brown, the Da Vinci Code, because it was long before the, uh, the Council of Nicaea. And here you have not the best handwriting in the world. So this was probably just a believer, some kind of believer who had some lit literary, literary ability. And probably, I mean... I can't prove this, but probably what you have here is Christians would always meet with other Christians and they would travel, and they wanted to be in the fellowship of the saints. And so uh, probably went into a, a church, and they, they brought out Peter's writings, started reading Peter's writings. He's like, what is this? I've never, I've never heard of this before. These are the epistles of Peter. We don't have this in our church. Can I copy it? And so you have a, an early believer who loves the Word of God, and copies out the second, first, second Peter and Jude, which is the earliest manuscript we have of this, and takes it back to his own fellowship. Now, not only am I standing there, I'm thinking about the fact, okay, I can reproduce this manuscript from my Nessie Allen 27th edition, which I had at me at the time. I could have reproduced every reading in it. That's how brilliant the Nessie Allen textual data information is and how rich uh, a, a heritage we have in being able to reproduce the early manuscripts of the New Testament. Secondly, here's someone who loved the Word of God so much they're willing to hand copy it. Think about it. what if what if we had to have um, hand copied versions of of the Bible? Uh, how many of us would have a complete Bible? Probably not many. Uh, it reminded me of the Lollards. Remember the Lollards after uh, they were the followers of John Wycliffe in in England, and Wycliffe, one of the early pre-reformers had believed that even the plowman should have the Bible in his own language. 
And so the Lollards would memorize the English translation of the Bible, and they would go out and they would preach to the people. And they were immediately banned by the, the government, and uh, and Wycliffe's translations destroyed. So what they would do is you would memorize a book of the Bible, and you'd take the name of that book. So when the Lollards would get together, um, John would stand up and give a recitation of the Gospel of John, and then Romans would stand up and give a recitation from the Book of Romans. Uh, I probably would have been like Third John, you know, uh, like I am Third John. Uh, Nice and, nice and short, nice and easy that way. Uh, but uh, this was the nature of their love of the scriptures, that they would memorize it so as to be able to maintain it and keep it from being, from being destroyed. So here's an early believer back around the year 200 uh, who is willing to hand write out all of First and Second Peter and Jude, uh, which again just remind me of the precious possession that the Word of God uh, is for us. And it was something that was dangerous to do. Uh, under periods of persecution, if he had been found with those things, he could have been fed to the lions or imprisoned or uh, other things. Uh, there's an incredible letter. Uh, I'm teaching church history right now in, in Sunday school. I'll be leaving in an hour and a half to, to go teach uh, Sunday school. Uh, and this will be the 10th lesson in the church history series that I'm doing. And um, uh, we, put, we post those on Sermon Audio, if you're interested, by the way. And uh, we'll be looking at Ignatius. Uh, the early uh, church writer, the apostolic father, Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch. And uh, I'll be reading from, uh, from Ignatius. Uh, uh, this is uh, the material that I'll be using. Uh, some of the tremendous testimony to the deity of Christ and things like that in Ignatius's writings. Um, he, he was writing before, uh, about 100 years before this time period. Uh, but uh, the... The, the persecution that would have been going on, this, this person might have been risking their life to even copy this, this page of the scriptures. And, and so there was just all these things flooding through my mind when I saw that, that, that papyri that just reminded me of how in debt I am to those who came before us. And we'll never know the names of all those faithful people, but we know a few. And uh, one of the most amazing letters, once I get to this in a well, a couple months probably, uh, that I'll be reading to my class at, at church is uh, a letter by Cyprian, who is the bishop in North Africa I mentioned earlier, uh, to the slaves in the mines. One of the things that would happen to Christians, they would be sent to, be, uh, to do slave labor in the mines, which, of course, you know how dangerous that is today. Imagine what it was like back then. It was pretty much a death sentence. Um, but just, just the amazing joy that Cyprian expressed to the slaves in the mines that could be theirs uh, in their profession of faith in Christ and so on and so forth. It's just an amazing thing to, to think on. We don't know the names of any of those slaves in those mines, but they were part and parcel of what God did in the building of his church. And I think we are uh, diminished in a way uh, when we are ignorant of the heritage that has been ours. Um, you know, it's not just like Fox's Book of Martyrs, which, while interesting, is, is not the most necessarily accurate uh, martyrology that's ever been written, but it was written during a period of conflict, and so things like that happened. But I'm not saying those stories didn't happen, but sometimes the way that which it's, it's expressed, some of, the, some of the stories of martyrs get a little bit exaggerated, but there were many martyrs. And they did give their faith, their lives for their faith. And I think we should know about that. The book of Hebrews talks about that. The book of Hebrews has the great, you know, chapter 11, and, and martyrs are very much a part of what we have there. And church history didn't stop there. Uh, it continued on after that time period. And so, once again, that idea of the mirror of... Uh, it would be best if we knew now how the church responded to persecution rather than trying to figure that out 10 years from now when we're experiencing it ourselves. It'd be really good to know uh, how is it that early, the, the, the church, what, what, what might be some of the pitfalls, what might be some of the, uh, the strains that are going to come upon our local fellowships when we begin to experience these things. Um, Right now, we're just looking forward, going, I'm not sure what's going to happen. I'm not sure. 
okay, but how about thinking about looking back and going, well, how did the church respond to these things in the past? Uh, maybe, maybe we can see how these uh, difficulties are going to arise before they actually do and be prepared for it rather than sort of being playing catch up in essence uh, on the way uh, to the local prison or something like that to visit someone who's now uh, lost their freedom. Uh, church history would give us the opportunity of, of being able to do that. And so there's a lot of things. Uh, you know, so often church history is used in universities. Our young people end up going off to secular universities. Pfft, let me take that back. Or even lots of Christian universities. Um, uh, I wish I wish I could say, well, you'll be safe as long as you're going to Christian university. Yeah, um, that's not the case. Our, our young people, they end up going off to university. And if we haven't discussed these things within the community of faith, when we haven't talked about these things within the community of faith, thank you, Coper. Appreciate, appreciate your joining us. That's my cat. Uh, one of my cats. Uh, very, very loud. Uh, very loud little creature. And I hope he goes away. But right now he just thinks he's joining in and, and helping out. And uh, I don't know if Augustine had a cat or not. But uh, anyway, uh, I'm sure somebody did. Uh, I know Erasmus thought that fleas were actually demons biting him. So we can go somewhere with that. I'm not sure where. But anyway, what was I talking about? Thank you, Philip. I really appreciate uh, completely derailing me. I had even thought, what happens if Coper comes in while I'm speaking and does his drive-by meowing? I, I'm not sure how to handle that. Um, totally lost the, the train of thought there. But, but they go off to university. Uh, so often, the, uh, one of the most uh, effective arguments that is used to damage their faith is to raise questions from the history of the church that they have never heard of before. They don't know that this took place in history. They don't know that there were questions about the canon. They don't, for example, uh, one of the big things today is using the Gnostic Gospels. Every Easter, every Christmas, somebody drags out of the archives uh, some Gnostic writing, uh, like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of the Egyptians or Gospel of Peter, whatever, and and hits us up with that. And the vast majority have never read the Gnostic Gospels. I, I actually, on my, on my Dividing Line program, have read a couple of them just recently for folks, uh, all the way through, the Protevangelium of James, uh, the Gospel of Thomas. They're not all that long. It doesn't take that long to do. And just so that people can, can know, oh, that stuff's weird. Uh, okay, uh, it doesn't sound anything like the Gospels, and it was written uh, 150 years after the time of Christ, has a completely different worldview. But because we don't talk about these things, our, our, people get, our young people get caught up in not being prepared and not knowing that uh, there were controversies over... Well, well for example, um, guess which book of the New Testament we have the fewest manuscripts of? So when you look at the 5,717 approximately uh, cataloged uh, manuscripts of the Greek New Testament, that's, that's whole New Testaments or portions thereof. Guess which book of the New Testament we have the fewest of? Anyone want to guess? Matthew. Oh, no, the Gospels are the most. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the most. Okay. Any other guess? James, we heard? Revelation. 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 There you go. I'm glad you said revelation and not revelations. Oh, yes. Yeah. That is one of my pet peeves. Uh, yes. Do not say revelations. And it is Psalm 102, not Psalms 102. Okay. Just so we all know how that works. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, the book of Revelation. Now, why would that be? Well, because there were a lot of people in the early church that said, I don't think so. Um, and I think that's a good thing, A, to know that, that it, it struggled for recognition and acceptance. And B, I'm glad the early church wasn't sitting there going along, hey, you know, we need some more books with seven-headed monsters and ten-headed beasts. Anybody got some more? We like these. That's, that's, you know. No, they were, being, they were being very critical in their examination. Does, does this really come from an apostle? What really is the message? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, there were issues about the canon. Hebrews struggled for acceptance. And there were, there were some people 
who believed other books belonged in the New Testament that were popular in their particular areas, such as uh, the, the Epistle of Clement to the, to the Corinthians, uh, or the Shepherd of Hermas, or the Epistle of Barnabas. Uh, these are early works that did exist. They were never universally accepted. And if you really want to read some really good books on the canon, by the way, uh, the president of RTS in Charlotte, Dr. Michael Kruger, has put out a number of really good books on the subject of the canon, two of them specifically. And he also has a, a website called Canon Fodder that you might find interesting. But um, uh, those issues of the canon, extremely important. And, and our people are unfortunately very uh, uh, liable to attacks uh, from university professors, things like that. My daughter experienced that. Her first year in college, Glendale Community College, uh, she had a rabidly bigoted anti-Christian, profane anti-Christian teacher. And finally, after about two months, my wife, my, uh, my daughter just couldn't handle it anymore. And so she put up her hand and challenged him on something that he had said. And in the tirade that followed, uh, he was talking about who wrote the Gospels and, and, and got all flabbergasted and finally said, well, just Google it. Uh, that's, that's the level of uh, scholarship that, that he had on that subject. Just Google it. Uh, but that's the kind of stuff that, that, is, that is out there. I think you have those kind of professors in almost every community college in, uh, in America, and uh, they will take advantage of the ignorance uh, of our people if we do not discuss these things within the context of the church. One last thing that will take some questions, just sort of wetting your interest. Um, next year is 2017, and most folks are aware of the fact that traditionally— uh, the Reformation uh, begins when Martin Luther nails the 95 Theses to the Castle Church door in Wittenberg, Germany, uh, October 31st, 1517. So this is going to uh, be the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation. Now, those of us who teach church history go, yeah, sort of. Uh, the reality is that the Reformation, all, be very, very, very wary of any book or pamphlet you see that has lists of dates and it says, you know, purgatory defined or this happens or that happens. Almost everything that happens in church history is the is a mixture of numerous streams of development that have been taking place for a long time. And so you can have one little thing that develops in the theology of one person over here and it gets combined with something over here and then it can be 50, 100 years later, something comes over here, and it can literally be hundreds of years of development before you come up with, for example, the Roman Catholic doctrine of, of purgatory, uh, which reaches its full flower and development in the 15th century. But it started a lot earlier than that. Uh, be careful of anything like that. But you're going you're to be hearing a lot about the Reformation. You're going to be hearing a lot about Martin Luther. Um, fascinating stuff. And most of us know more, for a lot of us today, church history sort of starts with Martin Luther. Uh, but you, you could never really put Martin Luther in a proper context if you don't understand medieval theology and early church theology. And if you actually read Luther or Calvin, you'll see how much they talked about those very individuals and quoted from those very individuals, things like that. But you'll probably be hearing a, a lot, especially about Luther's oddities, uh, I mean, you could you could do an entire semester just on Luther's oddities. There's no no choice about it, and even trying to identify which Martin Luther we're talking about, because you've got the the Martin Luther uh, pre 1516, you've got 1516 to 1525, you've got 1525 to 1535, and then 35 to to his death. And each one is fundamentally different than the others uh, on in certain areas of development, and and not all the development is good development. Um, a lot of, you'll hear, I, I'll bet, bet you anything that starting in the summer, moving toward uh, October, uh, you'll hear about Luther's anti-Semitism, uh, which was not really present in much of what he wrote at all uh, in the early part of his life, but it became much more prevalent toward the end of his life. Well, that's not a good development. Uh, now, the papacy was much more that way, but, uh, you know, that's... That doesn't change the fact that, you know, honesty will tell you you need to 
Uh, well, for example, uh, one of the things I do at my church is I'll I'll play like the BBC movie Martin Luther Heretic, which I think is even better than the full movie. It was done later on, Martin Luther Heretic, um, and everybody's excited because you know Luther stands before the emperor at the at the Diet of Worms and and uh, here stay he's cognish under is here I stand I can do no other and we're all excited and we all want to go out and. And, uh, you know, pass out tracks outside a Catholic church or something. But uh, then the next week I'll play a movie called The Radicals. And it came out in the uh, early 90s. And it's about Michael Sattler and his wife, Margareta. And it's about the Anabaptists. And then you have to deal with the reality that in 1521, Luther is willing to die for his faith uh, in front of the governmental authorities. Where by 1525, he's willing to see the power of the Lutheran state used to execute Anabaptists. And we go, hmm, what's that all about? Uh, well, it's called sacralism, state church. And the idea of having multiple churches within one uh, governmental jurisdiction just hadn't crossed too many people's minds yet. Uh, so there, there's a lot of, of thinking to, to be done, a lot of you have to learn to appreciate people who lived in church history uh, while recognizing you're going to disagree with a lot of things they said. And that's an important thing, I think, to develop over time is the ability to do that. But anyways, I've babbled on for 45 minutes now. So uh, my understanding is there might be some questions. Uh, so be happy to do that because I can certainly hear you all uh, pretty good. Uh, I've heard pretty much every chair that's moved and, and everything. I see I just drove a couple out of the room. I'm sorry. There's a few more. Yeah, there's a few more getting up and saying, okay, that's enough of that. We're out of here. Okay. Yeah, we'd like you to come up here and just stand behind the projector and use the mic, if, if you would, Brian. That's fine, too. That works, too. I can see you. Hi. My name is Brian. Um, I, uh, I'm in a Bible study with a very broad range of people, some Roman Catholics. Um, once in a while we get a, a Parsi in there who's Zoroastrian. Once in a while my Buddhist mother-in-law is in there. Uh, we get some, e we got some evangelicals, some charismatics, some uh, Pentecostals, and then we've got this one guy who's, uh, I have no idea what, emergent or something. And he always throws out some kind of crazy curveball one one of the things that happened last time that I skipped over because I was leading it and we just needed to keep going was he's like, well, aren't you thankful for the Catholic Church because they gave you your Bible? Yeah. Okay, so that one, and I've run into that one before, and I just I just kind of brush it off because it's like, oh, I didn't know the Catholics were all Jewish and they wrote the Tanakh and you know <laughs> it's like, well, I mean, where does this idea come from? Well, uh, a couple things. First of all, we have to define Catholic Church because that term was used in the early period to differentiate between groups that would split off like the Donatists and Novatians. Kata halas in Greek means according to the whole or universal. No one, including Augustine, would have had any earthly idea what Roman Catholic meant because Roman Catholic's actually an oxymoron because Roman centers it in the Bishop of Rome but Catholic means universal. So you've got a local universal. That, that doesn't make any sense. And that terminology develops much later. The concept of the papacy develops much later. And so uh, just as we have had other words stolen from us, like no one today uh, amongst uh, Bible-believing Protestants is comfortable saying Eucharist. The problem is Eucharisteo is a beautiful Greek word, which means the giving of thanks. And so we've sort of had it stolen from us because of its utilization by later Roman Catholicism. But when it comes to the Bible, uh, you need to understand the Roman Catholic doctrine is fundamentally that the Bible is dependent upon her authority. That is Rome's teaching. And if you want to see a number of the debates I've done with Roman Catholic apologists on that, they're all available. Well, most of them are available on YouTube. Uh, but Jerry Matatix, uh, actually probably one of the best ones was with Father Mitchell Pacwa. He's the guy that's on EWTN all the time. I watched uh, that. 
You I, watched that debate? I, yep, with the Pacwa, yeah. Yes, yeah. I saw that. Um, you know, on a timeline, Jerome translated the Vulgate. Right. Okay, he, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm shooting from the hip here. I haven't Googled it. Um, <laughs> he did that as a, as a, a reaction, like, oh my goodness, we have to have our own English translation. Let's hurry up and do it because the, the Protestants are working on theirs. And am I, wh where, what is the timeline yeah. and, the, and the, the way things kind of happened? Why did Jerome translate the Vulgate? Was he commissioned by somebody? And was, was it a reaction to something that was going on with, you know, the Roman Catholic Church was chasing around Wycliffe and trying to, you know, kill anybody okay. that translated the Bible into English. You, you, and okay, you, you got you've got Jerome way off there. Okay, uh, good. Jerome, Jerome that, translated Jerome translated the Vulgate between about 390 and about 405. Okay, that's really about early. A thousand years before Wycliffe. Really early. Okay, wow. Very okay. very very early. And Jerome was one of only two early church writers who knew both Greek and Hebrew. The other was Origen. Uh, Augustine, for example, did not know Hebrew, and his Greek wasn't very good either. Um, so uh, Jerome translated uh, the Vulgate primarily because there had been a number of Latin translations done, but they weren't consistent. Okay, so I, inconsistency. I, I, I skipped a step. I'm sorry. Yes, the Vulgate is into Latin. Okay, right. but then, but then somebody took. Jerome's Latin translation and went to English. Right, the Douay rhymes. When when was that? Um, well, uh, there were actually uh, common language translations done before the Reformation, uh, even though the official language of the church remained Latin at that time. Um, but uh, there really wasn't you know, Douay Rhymes is probably the, the primary English translation that was offered in opposition to the King James translation. Uh, okay, I think that's what I've got in my head. There was some reaction to getting the scriptures out to the common man in the, in the, okay. in the common language, and that you're, I you're don't... Probably, you're probably thinking about the fact that the, the Counter-Reformation, uh, the Jesuits... Uh, were the primary element of the Counter-Reformation, where uh, there is a pushback, and a, a rather effective pushback. For example, uh, uh, certain areas of Europe that had become Protestant were, were reclaimed by the Jesuits for Roman Catholicism. And the Jesuits launched attacks on the reliability of the Bible um, and in a, a number of areas like that, which, interestingly enough, over time have only rebounded to the destruction of their own view of those things, which is rather interesting. But, uh, yeah, the, the, the Counter-Reformation was primarily focused on the Jesuits and someone named Ignatius Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, uh, who was rather fanatical in his defense of the, of the papacy and the Roman Catholic system. But that's, that's, that's in the middle of the 16th century. Okay, okay. Um, you know, using the, using the Didache... How good of an idea or bad of an idea is that um, with Christians in a Bible study saying, look, here's early Christians. They're not shuffling down the aisle to go take communion in a wafer and a sip. They're having a meal, eating it to their fill. And then also baptism. They're clearly talking about... People who are old enough to make decisions and to fast for a couple of days to decide whether or not they really want to be baptized. How good of an idea is it to use that to say, look at this, look at early church history. There's not the kind of baptism, there's not pedo baptism, there's not, you know, Christians shuffling down the aisles to take communion. Does that. Yeah, uh, the, the Didache, I actually read all the Didache to my class just a few weeks ago at church. The Didache is an early uh, discipline manual, uh, and it, it does give us an idea of what Christians were doing at a particular period of time in the early church. Um, 
but that's just one area. That's just one. You have to be very careful not to universalize that. Um, I think we have to be very uh, circumspect, recognizing how much information we do and do not have from the early centuries and, and be I, very careful about the conclusions and, that we draw. And I guess that kind of gets at what I'm asking is, is that how widespread, do we know how widespread that Didache was? How um, localized and unique was it? Was it common? You know, because no. that'd be the argument you would make against it. You'd be like, well, that's just one group of people. That's just the way they did it. Yeah, no, you, 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 there's no way of knowing how widespread it was. Uh, there is, uh, there is some, there are some scholars that feel that the uh, Shepherd of Hermas uh, and the Epistle of Barnabas show familiarity with it, which would mean that it, it did have a fairly wide distribution. Um, but look, you, you, you have to take, you have to recognize one of the things that people struggle with is if you look at the early church fathers, if you read Ignatius, you read. Polycarp, uh, a few things like that. Um, there are differences between these uh, these various uh, writings, and they show more or less familiarity with the New Testament as we possess it today. There were people who did not have a complete New Testament, and if you don't have a complete New Testament, you're not necessarily going to have the most balanced understanding of things. So Justin Martyr, for example, uh, in the second century, uh, never quotes from Paul. Well, that has an impact on his theology, and we have to be fair in our analysis of these folks and be very careful that we don't make overarching, broad uh, conclusions based upon things that uh, might not actually be representative of, of the whole at that point. Okay, yeah, good point. Got to be careful. Anybody else here? Hi, Dr. White. Uh First, I'd like to thank you for, uh, uh, you had a radio discussion with a couple other gentlemen and you got into the King James only version of the Bible and uh, uh, the development of that particular version. I, I would recommend that to anyone. Yeah. Um, my question is, uh, you, you indicated that development of uh, history and documentation of uh, the Christian Church has been from a number of sources at various times and I'm one of those people that when I start studying I'll go down these rabbit trails and I'll go so far that I forgot where I jumped in uh, <laughs> how do we determine if there's a, a simple answer how do we determine which are the reliable sources in this development and which aren't before we get too far down that hole thank you well, uh, it's sort of a question about what sources to use. If, if you're reading any secondary source, whether it's Schaff's History of the Church, Shelley, Gonzalez, um, there, there are so many books on church history. If it's a secondary source where you're, you're gathering sources together and coming to conclusions and stuff, you always have to read them recognizing that this is one person's take and they may have some traditions and may have some emphases that may or may not actually represent uh, the history accurately. All of us have that problem. Um, but uh, obviously one of, the, one of the best ways to deal with the subject is to read original sources. And uh, a lot of the writings of the early church fathers are available online for free. Uh, sometimes uh, Christian book distributors will have a insane sale on the uh, uh, 38 volume early church fathers set, which looks great on your shelf, by the way. It really does. It <laughs> put that behind you when you're doing videos and you look like the smartest guy on the planet. But, um, uh, you know, there's all sorts of, 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 of sort of original sources that can be read as well. Um, but, uh, that is one of the major questions is, uh, especially in dealing with Roman Catholicism and forged documents and things like that. See, the difference between me and my Roman Catholic friends is I don't have to make the early church fathers into a Reformed Baptist like I am. Uh, I can recognize that there are people at different views than me. But the Roman Catholic is stuck pretty much having to read them as Roman Catholics, even though it introduces a, a huge anachronism. And so I can allow the early church fathers to be the early church fathers. That's one of the most important things, I think, to grab hold of is 
you know, what if somebody dug up one of our, our Christian bookstores um, 2,000 years from now? What would they think we believed? Uh, you know, they, they would they have Bishop yeah. Bishop Lovely. Bishop Benny Hinn, You know, uh, you know what's what would that be all about? So we, we need to be uh, circumspect and 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 careful along those lines, and and then extend a lot of grace to those that we read in church history too. I think that helps a lot down the line. So, hey, I appreciate. Uh, did you have one? Yeah, one one more quick question. Is there a reference, a book or two, maybe that if we wanted to have on the shelf for church history with timelines and that type of thing, something that you might be able to recommend. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of them. Uh, you know, the, the, the multi-volume Schaff is still the best reference, in my opinion, even though it's a little dated. Um, Kenneth Scott Lauderette's two-volume set. You've got Gonzales. Gonzales is almost like, a, is like the living Bible of church history books, though. It's, it's sort of... Uh, it's it's a little weird along those lines. It's easy to read, but it's it, it's like historical fiction, but based upon history. It's it's odd along those lines. Anyways, um, so there, uh, you know, uh, Owen Chadwick's stuff on the Reformation or on the early church is is really good. There there are a lot of a lot of good things, but you you have to handle any source with some. Um, uh, recognition of where the person's coming from and that they might have an agenda because uh, all of us do whether we know it or not all of us do whether we know it or not okay yeah wonderful thank you so all right. much and uh, yeah appreciate it it's the uh, first time i've ever done anything like this but uh hey uh, uh it, it works I, I, I didn't see any hiccups on my end i'm not sure if you had any on yours but Perfect. uh uh, nobody's awake on a Sunday morning to be using the net, so we've got plenty of, uh, of band usage available. We really appreciate it, Dr. White. This was fantastic, and I recommend everybody. He does have the, the nine of your, your classes from Sunday School up on Sermon Audio already, and I, I've had an opportunity to listen to the first four and just more of what we saw here today, so highly recommend that too. Thank you so much for all you do, and all may right. God bless you, keep you healthy. Thank for you a very long much. Time. All right, God bless. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.